from Kurtco Media. This is Cars That Matter. Welcome, this is Robert Ross with Cars That Matter. We're recording remotely today. It's not just because of our official lockdown. Actually, it's the first Cars That Matter episode where we've had an opportunity to talk with a guest all the way across the country. This time, it happens to be Brandon Starks. Brandon, it's great to have you on the show. Thank you. It's, it's great to be here. It's an honor to be your first remote interview. <laughs> well, the first of many, I hope, and hopefully it's not our last conversation either because I have a feeling there are a lot of things going on where you are working. You're the executive director of the Brumos Collection, and it's certainly exciting to have you as, as a guest to talk about, in this case, a very significant automotive collection that just opened to the public earlier this year. It, it's really exciting, and uh, we're happy to, to get out there and, and tell a little bit of our story, and we have lots of stories. Uh, from the photographs that I've seen, it's absolutely a remarkable sort of step back into history, at least architecturally. Tell us a little bit about the building as a way of, of starting. I understand it has something to do with an old Ford manufacturing plant and where it's located. Yeah, absolutely. So a little backstory beyond that is, is the collection itself started when we were, were car dealers here in Jacksonville, Florida, and we had a collection of cars that had accumulated over time, and we had a, what we called our museum space at the, at the dealership. The dealership sold in 2015. At that point, we realized we needed to move all of our collector cars. So we started looking around at existing spaces. And one of the ones that had always had some appeal to us was this Ford assembly plant that is located in downtown Jacksonville, Florida. And it operated from 1924 all the way through, I believe, 1962. At the end, it was just a distribution center. But it had a very unique kind of Ford look to it, large windows, skylights, and just kind of a lot of character. So when we realized that was just too far gone, we, we used that as the inspiration for the design of our building. Well, it sounds like uh, everything about your collection really is about tribute. You talked about the dealership. I guess it's probably important to start by explaining what exactly Brumos is. I know that there was a guy that actually started the dealership named Hubert Brundage, and Brundage was shortened to reflect his, his telex name, which was Brundage Motors. So Brumos is really a kind of a, an abbreviation of that. And of course, Brumos went on to become a famous name with a new owner acquired it, a guy that we'll be talking about named Peter Gregg. Correct. Hubert Brundage was actually heavily involved in, in motorsport himself, and that's how he got into the car business, is he figured he could race more inexpensively if he owned a distributorship. And so he acquired a Volkswagen distributorship in 1953. And um, that's how it began. I guess his dealership opened in 59 officially as a Porsche dealership. Was that right? Correct. So he, he went from Volkswagen and became the southern Porsche distributor for the southern United States, southeastern United States, and ultimately had a dealership. And 1959 is when we have our original dealership agreement signed. And that's where you'll see first see Brumos used as, as the name of the dealership instead of Brundage Motors. Boy, that's a great formative time. 356As and cars that look like little bathtubs turned upside down. Amazing period in Porsche's formative years. Really, the late 50s and the 60s certainly were the years of transition to a much more systematized and professional and serious endeavor, especially as the next owner of the dealership discovered. And that, that's 
Peter Gregg, I mean, obviously a name that resonates in the history of American racing. Maybe you want to talk a little bit about him. Peter was kind of the next big step for Brumo. So Hubert died in a motorcycle accident in 1964. And Peter lived in Jacksonville. He was a naval intelligence officer, Harvard educated. So one of the ships he used to fly on to was called the USS Forstall. It was an aircraft carrier here in town. The whole number for that ship was 59. And Peter always liked the way that the number looked when he was flying into the plane. And so that's when he decided that was going to be his race car number. And from 1967 on, that's been our Brumos racing number. And after Hubert passed, the distributorship was sold. And then Peter ultimately, I think it was his third attempt, purchased Brumos in 1965. Hmm. And from then, he really took it to kind of the next level with motorsports. And you'll see a lot of pictures from Daytona, I think, in 67. That's right. That was certainly an important year, but I guess we're getting ahead of ourselves Mm -hmm. because we want to talk about all these great cars in a little bit uh, because certainly the cars are what are going to bring people to see this incredible collection. I guess it would probably not be a hyperbole to say that Peter Gregg was probably the most important American race car driver of the period. I mean, he, he had, what was it, something like 152 wins out of 340 starts, which is just an incredible resume of success. And it earned him great respect and an enduring legacy in in the sport. A couple of Trans Am wins, six IMSA GTO wins, four wins of the 24 hours of Daytona. I mean, this is heady stuff. Right. And in a lot of part of our, our history, you know, car sales were there to help fund our racing habit, for lack of a better term. And so it continued, you know, it started at Hubert with that. And then Peter as well, you know, the, the dealerships helped him carry on what he wanted to do on the racetrack. And he was extremely successful And as much as it was talent, it it was his personality. His attention to detail was probably almost second to none. Didn't they call him Peter Perfect? Peter Perfect, yes. And the way he would sort cars and go through them to the extent of basically rebuilding them when he took delivery of them from the factory, it's still legendary today. That's truly amazing. I guess he made a good friend around about 1966 when he raced against Hurley Haywood and did Hurley beat him? Was that it? Was that the story? (laughs) Yes, her. her. Hurley beat him. I think that was 69. And Hurley Haywood was going to school at Jacksonville University here in town. And he had souped up Corvette that he would drive around and ended up competing in an autocross against Peter and actually beat Peter. And so Peter kind of taking the the mantra, if you can't beat him, join him, told Hurley, well, you, you must be pretty good if you can beat me and asked him to race at Watkins Glen that year. Those two met at the right place at the right time. And it was the two right people. That's really an amazing thing. I know that Hurley continued to work with the dealership. In fact, I guess he was a VP there throughout some of the the 70s. And and of course, later on, after Peter Gregg died, he he was a young man. And I guess something not often talked about, he committed suicide at 40 years of age. I guess he had a number of medical concerns and it was tragedy, both personally and in the world of racing, something that probably doesn't get mentioned enough. Speaking of that heady era, I mean, clearly the 60s and the 70s are when all the great racing action happened in his career and a lot of Hurley's early career as well. Let's talk about some of the ways that you've sort of manifested this collection. I know that you talked about the private collection the dealership owned for all those many years, and it was finally time to take it to the public. Talk about that evolution. Talk about how you got to where you are today. Yeah, it's been quite a journey. One one of the things I, I didn't mention, but you kind of nodded to, was the ability of the company to keep the name and the racing team together for so long. And I feel like I probably should mention Bob Snodgrass's role yes. in that. 
So Bob was hired on as Peter's general manager in 1972, and he remained with the dealership and the racing team through 2007 when he passed. Peter committed suicide in middle of December 1980. We had been married for nine days, and so his wife of nine days then takes over the companies. And it really was Bob that helped shepherd her through those times and keep it together. And it was also Bob that found Dan Davis, a local businessman here, to, to purchase Brumos from Deborah in 1990. And that was able to continue the legacy. Quite a passing of the torch with people who were committed, obviously, to more than just selling cars or even racing cars. It sounds like there was a lot of personal affection and commitment. There was. And that transferred throughout the companies. If you were a reporter that washed cars in, in the back lot, you were still proud on Monday when you came in and the team had had a good weekend or you were bummed out if they had a bad weekend, but it was very much a part of everything that people did around the stores. Back to the collection, you know, the first car in our collection was actually our 1979 935 Porsche. It was Peter's last race car. It's probably one of the most original, unmodified 935s in the world. But that was part of the transaction when Dan and Bob bought the dealerships from Deborah and was the first car uh -huh. of the collection. Well, that's a great linchpin to build a collection around because of the obviously the personal connection, the fact that it was Peter's personal car. I guess he took eight wins in that car. And of course, the 79 IMSA win, it was a car's model year of production. Brutal car to drive. And with the collection, if there's a mission statement, so to speak, what might that be? The purpose of opening to the public is, one, we want people to be part of this. You know, there, there's a couple sides to what's going on here. You know, we have our Brumos heritage and history that we need to give a place for. It's amazing how many times you'll come across someone who says, I remember sitting in my, on my dad's shoulders at Daytona and watching those cars <laughs> go by. And, yeah. you know, it's nice to have a place for those memories to park and not be gone. And that's very important to us. But we also want it to be accessible. You know, we see an issue with accessibility with motorsports and cars and collecting. And we kind of want to break down some of those barriers and create new memories and create things that people can kind of engage and interact and be part of it. And to recognize the people that were behind these great inventions that changed all of our lives. So not only in, in terms of preserving the Brumos history, but I imagine some great didactic information dialogue that happens when a visitor comes to the space. I guess your museum is pretty large. It's 35,000 square feet. That's a lot of floor space. It is quite big, and it allows us to spread the cars out some so people can get around them, explore them, and not feel like it's all crowded in and, and constantly worry about bumping into something or being somewhere that they shouldn't be. We want people to be able to look however they want to look. If you want to look under a car, go ahead, look under it, just to give space for engagement. So in other words, you have some space. It's not like going to the Pebble Beach Concours on a Sunday morning and backing up and taking out the fender on a priceless <laughs> Bugatti because there's not enough room to move around. Definitely nice to be unhindered in that way. Yeah, and we, we spent a lot of thought in designing it, how we wanted to lay it out like that. And the collection itself is roughly 65 cars. We'll have 40 or so on display in the showroom at any given time, and then maybe some scattered about. We call it like our little Easter egg hunt when we're open. Boy, that's a perfect number because uh, sometimes it's like going to the Louvre, it can be overwhelming and it's impossible to almost take in quantities that are so enormous. But 40 cars on display really gives a viewer an opportunity to regard each one in a serious and thoughtful way. It's funny you say that because we actually went to, to Le Mans this year. They ran a GTLM car from Porsche in a Brumos tribute livery. So we flew over to go to the race. And while we were there, my wife and I did go to the Louvre. And I was in kind of the museum mindset at this moment. And that, that was one of the things that kind of shaped how we did things. Because I realized, you know, after a while, I'm like, yep, priceless work of art. Yep, 
there's another one another <laughs> one yeah <laughs> that was front and center when we were laying things out here that's a, a really rational way of approaching the viewer experience because uh, at a certain point there is overload. These are important automotive artifacts and they need to have some space around them, both physical space and just the time to, to really appreciate what they are. I love the idea of being able to look under the car. Sometimes those are the most exciting parts and to really kind of get up close and personal with, with these machines. Race cars especially have a certain allure because they're not all perfect panel gaps and flawless paint. They wear battle scars. They have a bit of patina that really reflects their careers as track weapons. And I imagine it's exciting to see some of those things too. Yeah, and that's true. And, and it gives them character. And 95% of what we have here are race cars or were race cars. And we like those because that's kind of was the impetus for the change and the way that people would test their inventions and, and see if they worked. And that's what interests us. So, yes, it's very race car focused. And there's always something to see, you know, a little cheat here or <laughs> clever maneuver there. And, that's, you know. that's right. Well, race, <laughs> racing, the best race cars take advantage of the rules. You push it right up to the limit until the scrutineers tell you to back off. <laughs> well, uh, Brandon, you're obviously the executive director of the Brumos collection, but clearly you have a personal affinity for cars and a history with Brumos as well. Well, why don't you tell us a little something about yourself? Yeah, so basically grew up here in Jacksonville and went to college here. I also went to Jacksonville University like, like Hurley did. But in 2005, I was looking for a career and ended up going to Brumos and got a job at their Lexus dealership in reconditioning in the, in the back and realized I, I loved it. And so I got exposed a lot to racing and cars then and, and stayed with Brumos until they sold the stores and actually stayed on with, with the new group for a couple years after that. I love cars. I love this world. I never was exposed to it as much as a child. I always wanted to be, but was never around it. So once it became tangible, just kind of ran with it. So I moved to Porsche in 2010, became the sales manager at Porsche, ultimately was the last general manager at Brumos Porsche when we sold the dealerships and then the first general manager at Porsche Jacksonville. And then about two years ago, Dan Davis, who owns the collection and owns Brumos, approached me about becoming the executive director at the Rumos Collection. That's a heck of a transition. Boy, as general manager of a Porsche dealership in 2010, that was a pretty heady time, man. Porsche was really gaining some steam in terms of sales volume and, and really stirring the pot, coming up with some incredible cars, which they continue to do today. But that was had to be an especially exciting time in terms of the Porsche landscape. And of course, it's probably important to remind our listeners that they don't already know that apart from Southern California, Florida is like the biggest Porsche market in the world, isn't it? Yes, it's bigger than a lot of countries. Exactly, exactly. Porsche is definitely a language spoken very fluently among Floridians. <laughs> but really going from a dealership role to a curatorial role, well, actually more than, than that because you're the executive director and you've actually got to keep the ship afloat too. It's really about people skills and kind of developing the relationships that generate excitement among the community and the people directly involved with the institution. Right. And so much of what we're trying to do is is experiential, which I think car sales have gone to as much as anything else. It's as much about the experience as, as it is about the item, right? So That's right. The Porsche Experience Centers being two great examples, both in Georgia and in California, you know, of how people really want to connect with the mark. Correct. And so that's kind of what we've tried to bring here. And, you know, luckily with the facility that we have and the collection we have, it takes some of the pressure off, but it's also, I joke with Dan all the time that he, he went and took away all my excuses. 
Well, I'm sure you don't have a whole lot of excuses to make. It sounds like things are chugging along real well. With your history at the Porsche dealership, do you have some cars of your own? I personally have two. You know, we have a Cayenne in the garage, and then I have a GT4 that I drive as my oh boy, my passionate car. You're having too much fun. That GT4 <laughs> is the best-kept secret in the whole Porsche arsenal. It is. Nothing that handles better and, and affords more fun than, than that, that particular That was the downside when I left the dealership as I no longer got a demo, so I had to pick one. You get no argument from me. That's a, that's a, that's a wonderful, wonderful car. And obviously, you're walking the walk and talking the talk. Well, let's take a quick break and come back and talk about some of the cars at the Brumos Collection. Obviously, most of them start with a letter P, but you've got some interesting outliers, too. So hang with us, and we will be back. A Moment of Your Time, a new podcast from Kurt Tell Media. Currently 21 years old. And today, I felt like I'm magic extended from her fingertips down to the you base of my You have to take care spine. of yourself because the world needs you and Trust your Trust me, voice. every do-gooder that asked about me was ready to spit on my dreams. Her fingers were facing me. You can feel like your purpose and your worth is really being it's questioned. It's going to stop me from playing the piano. She buys walkie-talkies, wonders to whom she should give the second device. Cats don't love humans. We never did. We never will. We just find the ones that are The beauty of rock climbing is that you can only focus on what's right in life. And so our American life begins. We may need to stay apart, but let's create together. Available on all podcast platforms. Submit your piece at kirkco.com slash a moment of your time. Well, this is Robert Ross. I'm back with my guest, Brandon Starks, executive director of the Brumos Collection, which opened in January 2020, an automotive museum collection that you'll be hearing a lot more about as people discover what incredible cars they have there. Most of those cars start with P, but there are a few fascinating outliers as well. And Brandon, I'd love to just be able to talk about some of them. I know that you sort of opened with a grand announcement about one very important Porsche. Tell us about that one. So I guess you're speaking about the 917K? That's right. I remember seeing that car when it was auctioned by Gooding in 2017. Damn near got to sit in it, but it was certainly the highlight of that sale and was a great pleasure to find out that it had actually been acquired and is now the one of the centerpieces of Brumos. Yeah, and it's it you know it's kind of a little bit odd car for us to have as the centerpiece here with it being, you know, a European car and kind of doing a little bit different racing than we did, but it was a little bit special to us. It was owned personally by Joe Siffert. He then loaned it to Steve McQueen for for the movie Le Mans. That's right. But Joe actually bought it after he it was used as a, a test car for the factory team, and he bought it personally. He drove it to his own birthday party in 1970. <laughs> Later on, after he passed away in, in 1973 during Grand Prix race, they used that car to lead his funeral procession. It actually had 50,000 people there for that. But his son had thought maybe he would want to race one day, so his wife held on to the car after Joe passed away. But her only caveat was that if he was going to race it, he needed to race the number 70 because that was the year that she, she and Joe got married. So that's why ours reflects the number 70 on it. That's great. That's, that's, that's a, an amazing car, obviously not just that specific serial number 024, and not just because it's been seen by probably more eyeballs than any <laughs> Porsche in the world by virtue of the film Le Mans, but really because it's an iconic car in the history of Porsche racing. Certainly there was no greater series of cars than the 917s. You, you mentioned this was, of course, a Le Mans car, a, a European GT racing car that was different from what you guys were doing in the States here, but it certainly had the Porsche DNA with that incredible horizontally opposed 12-cylinder engine. What an animal. It is, and cars are funny. 
you kind of get to know one another over time. And the car, we, we kept it secret for a couple of years. So it, it's been hidden away and we haven't all spent a lot of time together. So we're, we're just now getting to spend time with each other and get to know each other. It sounds weird like that, but they do have no, a, there's, a soul there's, to them. There's definitely a soul there. There's definitely a soul. <laughs> so yeah. we're still dating a little bit here, but no, the car is amazing. And, and what's been so exciting is to see how excited people get to see them. And then also to see the reaction when they realized what those cars could do performance-wise while you're looking at it. And for cars to do those speeds for that amount of time when you're next to the car and you're looking at what the car is made of and what it must be like to be inside it, it really kind of is fascinating. Those were were almost death-defying acts. I mean, kind of like our first moon astronauts going up in those little tiny capsules. You'd be shaken half to death in those things. And as advanced as the 917s were in in 1970, they were uh, certainly a far cry from any of the cars we have today in terms of safety and braking and and whatnot. And yet they were achieving speeds that were nearly on par with them. They were as fast as guys are driving today. Mm -hmm. I mean, 200 miles an hour in in that machine must have been an other worldly experience yeah, with tire technology that's 50 years older than that's it is right today that's but, right uh, you know that's one of the things that, that really stands out is our oldest race car goes back to 1894 and then our newest one you know this last year's gtlm car that we bought after the season was over and you realize as you walk through all of these cars just how dedicated to the idea of going fast that these drivers must have been when you look at them and you put yourself in their shoes I don't think many of us would have the courage to do what they did. No, I mean, 100 miles an hour in 1915 would have been an incredible uh, an incredible feat. Uh, yeah, I want to talk about some of those older cars you've got. I guess maybe we should probably shuffle the Porsche deck first, though. What do you, sure. what do you think, since that's sure. kind of who you guys are all about? Now, I don't want to put too fine a point on it or embarrass anybody by asking Howard Hughes how much he's worth, but I know for a fact that particular Porsche sold for $14 million and change which seemed like a lot of money at the time, but as an artifact of Porsche history, it's probably a bargain in retrospect because they ain't making those anymore. You've got some other cars, though, that are of equal interest and certainly of great significance in Porsche history. I know not just the the cars that Peter drove, but some earlier ones as well. You have a 908 that's kind of a significant car, don't you? Yeah, that car was also a, a Josephert car. He and Vic Alford won Nürburgring in that car in 1968. It was an early car. It kind of follows that that evolution up through the 917. That's right. There's certainly not many of those. And what's remarkable is that these cars have been preserved. I know like your 917, the Le Mans 917, I guess one reason it survived is because it was essentially stuffed in a barn for a couple of decades. Sometimes those intervening years are the ones that take their biggest toll. (laughs) That's the truth. And, you know, a car sitting static is the hardest way to keep one. So you never know what you're going to find. But we've been blessed with these. And, you know, we got the 917 from auction. This was a private so far than the 908 and we're very fortunate to have it that's great at, at the other bookend to the 917 equation though is your can-am racer tell us about the 91710 yeah so the 91710 started out peter Gregg's car it, he first got it it was a, a naturally aspirated car it was actually blue at first and then that car wrecked i think about three races in and was sent back over to, to germany for repair while it was there they went ahead and did the turbocharge upgrade to the car they brought it back. Peter drove it, I think, one time. And if you hear Hurley tell it, he, Peter came to him and said, Hurley, you've got to buy this car and, and you've got to run it. 
because Peter didn't want anything to do with it. <laughs> well, I guess it was an animal. That, it to was. Put, it, put it into context. I mean, today guys are boasting about their 1,200 horsepower Bugattis, but this damn thing made 1,100 horsepower in 1971. Yeah, and with the turn of a knob, some more than that. So it's that's uh, right. And they don't weigh right. anything. So I, you know, talk <laughs> about just fearless. That that's the fearless car, and you have fuel tanks next to you and the drivers next to the door sill. That's right. And, uh, your legs are out over the frame, and it really took a special person to drive that. But that car is what put Hurley on the map was his success in the in the 917, and then winning Daytona in '73 put him on the right trajectory with Porsche. That's right, and starting with one of the most wicked race cars in Porsche's history. Oh. Yeah, just crazy times. And, you know, it's it's funny. They get the pressurized frames. That way they would be able to tell if the, the frame cracked. Right. But after the race, every time you would hook up the pressure gauge, apparently it read zero because <laughs> they all cracked. <laughs> he figured he was lucky to be alive and lucky it didn't disintegrate <laughs> right out from under him. Just and, don't tell the driver. Yeah. And uh, they would just put pressure on it so they could spray it with soap so they could find the cracks and oh my god uh, weld it back up but isn't it amazing wow what ingenuity and what bravery on the part of the drivers and the guys that invented these things and what's really neat is we have that car directly in front of our 917k on display so it, it's kind of interesting to see the american and european version of the same car and it's funny because they are very representative of the two different cultures i think that's right well because these cars are obviously static most of the time do you ever have days where you have an opportunity to get them out and fire them up and have your visitors see those do you anticipate that happening in the future that, that's on the agenda we'll see what our coronavirus slowdown does as far as timing for things but as i mentioned sitting static is a terrible thing to do to a car so the plan is to run them. We do plan on doing one, we call it a demo day a year, where we'll set up some bleachers and people can come out and, and see them. It won't be any kind of real speed, but you get to smell them and hear them and watch them move, which is interesting. And then we also have a, a four-wheel chassis dyno here as well that every car will, will be exercised on at least once a year. Definitely important to keep that exercise <laughs> up. <laughs> and when you're locked down in your house for a month, you want to make sure you get about a half an hour or an hour in every day just doing some activity. That's Right. Porsches need that too. Yeah, they sure do. Cars like the 917, you know, they take a long time to warm up. It's not just turn the key and go. Exactly. It's a real engineering feat to get those things started. That inhibits a lot of use sometimes, but some of our other cars, especially the Porsches or even our older cars that we'll talk about in a minute, are easier to fire up and just take around the parking lot. And of course, you've got the grounds to do it there, which is one thing that distinguishes your collection from so many that are sort of city bound. We're very fortunate with that. That's been one of the exciting things is when we come in, we can kind of imagine what we want our world to look like here and what we want to be able to do. So we're trying to make the most of it and it's been fun for all of us to just imagine it well it sounds like the dream has become reality you know we've been talking about porsches here brandon but most of these porsches aren't anything that the average if there is such a thing as an average car lover would recognize as a porsche one that would resonate quite a bit more is that famous 935 the 1979 935 that you've got which is essentially a 911 shape turned into fire breathing monster tell us about that one <laughs> Yeah, so that's, like I mentioned, that was Peter's last race car. Those were extremely just brutal cars to drive, but highly successful race cars. The turbo lag, I think, could be measured in almost seconds. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> that turns it into a 700-horsepower slingshot, doesn't it? Exactly. I think you you got to just figure out at what point of the corner you put your foot all the way down and then hope. Yep, that's right. That was a 200-mile-an-hour <laughs> car. So those guys were doing Molson straight speeds, practically. It, it, it's amazing what those cars would do. And Peter loved kind of 
tartan plaid. So it's got Peter's tartan plaid seat in it. And, you know, one of the first things he would do with the 935 is change out the shifter mechanism with something a little bit beefier than would have come from the factory. And so mm-hmm. you can see what Peter's shifters would have looked like. Also a guy named Jack Atkinson, who was the crew chief for Peter, developed a way that I guess he learned it from Pinsky, where you could pressurize the brakes to pop those open with compressed air to reduce the amount of time a brake pad change or a brake change would take in a race. So you can kind of see where the hose would hook up to those. And it's just neat to, to see. That's great getting a leg up on the competition. Hate to bring up another car, but I love having the 935 there because we also have an RSR next to it and a little bit the precursor to the 935. And it was actually the last That's right. naturally aspirated air-cooled car that would win Daytona. Would that be a 1975 75 RSR? 75, and it won Daytona in 1977. Yeah, that's the last quote-unquote pure Porsche. If we're getting into 911 history, boy, that that was a monster. And just the look, it, did, it didn't even have to fire up. To look at that car is so exciting. It takes that 911 with it. Oh, what a look. What a, it's the look that everybody wants to and know And then better. you start it, and the thing <laughs> sounds like the Tasmanian Devil, and it's just, that's yeah, the total package. Yeah. That's one of my favorites. Yeah, like a giant coffee can filled with rocks being yeah. spun in a blender on, on margarita on margarita <laughs> speed. Yeah, that, that's a that's quite something. Well, boy, if you've got every Porsche that every guy would ever dream of. One could say, as they do at the Seder, it would have been enough, but apparently it's not <laughs> enough because you've got some other great cars too, and they got nothing to do with Porsche. Take us down some of those aisles. Explain some of those old timers and what started before. Yeah, so the collection itself is basically divided into two exhibits. The Porsche side are what we call our front runners, and then we have our our forerunners, which are older cars. Most of them are open-wheel race cars, would have raced at Indy or European Grand Prix. Our oldest car is an 1894 Peugeot that would have raced in the first ever sanctioned automobile race. Wait wait a minute, 1894? I mean, Lincoln was barely dead. That's old stuff. It, it's incredibly old. And the question was, when we opened, you know, how, how would the public respond to some of the older stuff? Because it is not as, I would say, I don't want to say relevant, but as known to them as some of the Porsche stuff is. And we, even in our conversation, you can see how the Porsche stuff kind of bubbles up first. Well, it's a place to start. Yeah, it is. And it's been fascinating to watch how people are interacting with some of these cars. And some of them are extremely significant. I would say probably to us here and within that collection itself, our 1914 Peugeot L45, some would call it the grandfather of all race cars. That's right. Is a very special car. And, you know, to go back and, and talk about soulfulness of an automobile, that one has its own personality and soul to it. Now, that was a, what, a 1914 car? Correct. And it was designed to, to compete in the French Grand Prix in 1914. And it was the first time you see dual overhead camshafts, four valves per cylinder, four-wheel brakes on a race car, all these... Wait a minute, wait a minute. The, the, the new Lamborghini has all those things. Uh, that's, that's quite amazing, isn't it? It is. And it's, it's, it's really fascinating. And so that whole area of our, our museum really focuses on invention. You know, the things that, that you see there that these designers or drivers or, you know, engineers were developing, they didn't exist before. They, they thought of it and built it. And that, that's what's so amazing and fascinating. Well, when, when you think about the metallurgy and the ability to achieve tolerances that would actually allow them to do these kinds of things back in the pre-World War One era is, is a, a truly amazing thing. I guess your example is one of only two that remain. Is that right? Yes, there's there's very few of these, these cars out there. And this is a very significant car for us to the world if you're preserving that history. And it, and it ties into Harry Miller's legacy. 
That's right. Was your Peugeot from the Bothwell collection that was auctioned yes, recently? Yes, it was. Okay, that was, that was certainly the crown jewel of that collection. For those who don't know, he was a Southern California collector and had everything from uh, carousels to carriages to all kinds of crazy things. And he was just perspicacious enough to uh, acquire this old, precious Peugeot, and boy, it couldn't have ended up in a better place. Exactly. You were talking about some important name in competition, and that's uh, Miller. Again, a name that probably most younger motorsport enthusiasts don't know a whole lot about, but Miller was the man. Yeah, if you wanted to win at Indianapolis in the 1920s, you did it in the Miller. And he was basically an automotive genius, and he was known early on for, for making carburetors, and he would repair cars and build cars. But in 1915, some of these Peugeots, like ours, came to the United States because war had broken out in Europe. And Bob Berman's car blows a motor and gets in a wreck, and it got sent out to Harry Miller in L.A. to fix it. And Harry's fixing the car, and he does what car people do and sees a lot of great ideas and takes them. <laughs> That's right. There's, there's, no such thing, there's no such thing as stealing. It's called appropriation as needed. Right. And so he takes that technology and starts creating his own cars and built his first race car, the Golden Submarine, in 1917, and continued on through 1933. But his cars were not only some of the best race cars in the world, they were some of the most beautiful. That's right. It's, it's amazing when a race car not only achieves its technical objective, but when it can also become a piece of art into the bargain. And certainly some of the most beautiful, I mean, I think of some of the great Talbo Lagos and, and whatnot were exquisite. And uh, indeed, some of Miller's cars decade or, or almost two before were beautiful in their own kind of Jules Verne streamlined way. It's probably why Harry Miller's not a household name now and why he went bankrupt on more than one occasion. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, some of the some of the some of the brightest engineers weren't the best yeah. businessmen. Yeah. Be- beauty takes money, but his cars are extremely beautiful. All of them were hand built, hand drawn. His draftsman was a guy named Leo Goosen, who brought a lot of these ideas to life. But we explore, you know, Harry Miller and Leo Goosen here. A guy many people have heard of. Fred Offenhauser was, sure. was Harry Miller's shop foreman. Offie created the Offie. Yeah, we have some of those too. So we kind of follow the the lineage that began with the Peugeot and takes us up through Miller and then to some of the Offie power cars and Watsons and what have you. That's an exciting little neighborhood of automotive history that most people don't ever get a chance to visit. So it sounds like it's well worth investigating if one were never even to see any of the Porsches. There are some other fascinating cars there. Just real quick, that that has been one of the most exciting things for us. You know, we, we, we put these forerunners first. We saw it almost as a forced learning kind of strategy so that people would pass the older cars on their way to the Porsches. And it's been really interesting to see how, after they've seen the Porsches, how they're interacting with these older cars, and they just love them. And then every car has its own tablet. It's almost like a digital station guide where people can go and explore and learn about the cars on its own computer that's right next to them and see photo galleries of the cars and spec sheets. And it's been really neat to see people kind of dive in and get to know them. Well, you know, it's interesting you talk about that because the whole museum visitor experience is certainly different today than it was when a lot of the automotive collections were envisioned in the past. I remember going to the now disbanded Schlump collection and more like a dinosaur museum with dusty old bones and cars with deflated tires and crammed next to each other shoulder to shoulder and really more like a warehouse than a, an exploratory experience mm-hmm. for a viewer. So I think it's fantastic that what Brumos is doing is really trying to engage visitors in the most exciting and, and meaningful way. You know, it's, it's a way that people want to know why something's important. 
and you can know as much as you want about cars or whatever the topic is, but you're seeking to know why is this in front of me? Why is this important? And those computers allow us to do that. And then it also allows visitors to, to learn in their own way. So we all identify with cars differently. Some people are fascinated with the statistics and numbers and tech sheet where other people are more drawn to the emotional side of it or the, the stories of them. So it allows each visitor to kind of curate their own experience, find what they find important. You know, I think that that's a really important observation. And clearly, if there were any connections to be made from your collection specifically, I think it brings to bear that with every single one of these cars, there was a very strong human connection with either its designer or its driver or its owner. There's always a person or people that are closely linked with these cars. They, they are almost, as you, you talk about building a relationship, there's something that is really just an expression of a human endeavor that lets you feel much more closely tied to them than, mm -hmm. uh, than if they were just a hunk of metal with some parts hung on it. And if you want to draw the thread for the collection, how, how do you draw a thread from a collection that can start with an 1894 Peugeot and go through a GTLM race car from last year? And it is the people. What interests us in the cars, it, it's, it's the people and what they were able to produce, many of them without any of the technological tools that, that we have today. Real quick, the Peugeot, we just had folks come out to make a 3D model. And that involves taping basically a grid pattern with masking tape over the car and then shooting it with a laser, almost like quadrant sections. Mm -hmm. And it made me curious, and, and so I, I looked it up. Masking tape wasn't invented for another 10 years <laughs> after that car was built. Is that right? Oh, good yeah. heavens. So they would have had to use some... <laughs> <laughs> highfalutin, so, you know, gum yeah. arabic and linen yeah. or something. Wow. You build these cars and you don't even have masking tape. When you think about what was created and with the limitations and resources, and you know, even you get to Porsche, sometimes it was funding was the limitation of the resource. Sure. It really is amazing what individuals can do when they're dedicated to something. I guess that's where necessity is the mother of invention comes from. These guys had a need for speed and furthering potential of the automobile. And racing certainly was the impetus for that. Well, you know, Brandon, obviously your Florida community there is very engaged, but this is a destination that is a place that people would actually want to come and see. Can you tell us about the experience or what it takes to get to your collection? Sure. Again, we're located in Jacksonville, Florida. We're about a half an hour from Jacksonville International Airport, probably 15 minutes from I-95, which passes right through town here. We do have tickets available online. We prefer pre-sale only. It just allows us to keep an eye on the number of people that we're expecting to make it more visitor-friendly when you get here. We don't want anybody in a mass of people. You know, the hope is that everybody would be able to have a moment, whatever that moment is. That's right. So we need to leave enough room for, for people to have that moment. But yeah, you can buy tickets ahead of time on our website, which is at isthebrumoscollection.com. And then we're fairly active in social media, too. So if you want to learn more about what we have or what we're doing or just stay connected, the social media is the place to do it. And we're excited about that is that it gives us a chance to dive in a little bit and provide some detail that we might not have otherwise have time to do. And so there's some projects that we're working on to give people a little bit of a, a behind the scenes or a little bit more in-depth look at some of our cars. Well, that's great. Well, you know, speaking of projects and plans, and I may be asking questions that are top secret, but does the collection have some major objectives going forward? Uh, some big game that you're hoping to acquire or a direction that you want to take vis-a-vis -vis adding cars? I'll never say never. 
<laughs> they have a way of popping up when you're not expecting it. Yes, they do. I think right now we have a good foundation for what we're doing. The goal is to lay that out in a way that translates for our visitors and to kind of get our stories told. From a bigger level, we're working on getting our volunteers trained so that to add to the experience for guided tours and whatnot. Well, I'll raise my hand. It sounds like a great way to uh, segue off into a, a new career. <laughs> We have the most enthusiastic volunteers you could imagine. We've been really blessed. And, you know, I laugh all the time when I was at a dealership to get people to show up on time was like an act of God. And my volunteers <laughs> will be here 45 minutes before their scheduled shift. Two opposite ends of the spectrum. Isn't that great? Man, you're having, yeah, too, mu you're having too much fun. Of course, we don't see all the work that takes behind the scenes. But <laughs> from my perspective, it sounds like a dream job and a dream collection. And I can't wait to see it in person. You know, Brandon, obviously you've got some great cars under your aegis at, at the collection, but probably have some personal favorites too. If the genie came out of the bottle and granted you any three cars for your wish, what would they be? I like a Porsche 906. I like DB4 GTS and Martin. Okay. And then a 993 Porsche 911. If and when I begin my own collection, that's, that's what <laughs> will start it. Well, that's a nice little trifecta. Certainly the Aston DB4 GT is a rarity of the highest order and probably one of the most fascinating British cars from the era. And mm -hmm. those two Porsches are great bookends in the, in the history of Porsche. I'm a 993 lover. I rue the day I got rid of mine. And uh, I think I every, every guy that's ever had one and got rid of it probably says exactly the same thing. Yes, yes. But there's definitely an opportunity out there. <laughs> and as for the 906, I, uh, I had a chance to be a passenger once. That's as close as I've gotten. Oh, but, did you uh, really? Yeah, yeah. Was, See, uh, I haven't even gotten that. So. It, was a, it was a remarkable car back before they were worth what they're worth today. Yeah. Well, Brandon Starks, I want to thank you. I wish you all the best of luck in your executive director position with the Brumos Collection. And since it is so new and fresh, open just a few months now, we would love to have you back and revisit this conversation in a year or so and see where things have taken you. We'd really enjoy that. Thank you so much. Well, a great pleasure having you and all the best to you and the folks at Brumos. Thank you. Thanks to today's guest, Brandon Starks, Executive Director of the Brumos Collection, for joining us today on Cars That Matter. Join us next time as we discuss the passions that drive us and the passions we drive. This episode of Cars That Matter was hosted by Robert Ross. Produced by Chris Porter. Edited by A.J. Mosley. Sound engineering by Michael Kennedy. Theme song by Celeste and Eric Dick. Additional music and sound by A.J. Mosley and Chris Porter. Please like, subscribe, and share this podcast. I'm Robert Ross. Thanks for listening. Kurt Cohn Media. Media for your mind.